Welcome once again to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Happy that you could join us. We've got a bright new year ahead of us and a familiar voice returning. That would be Sarah Montalbano. She is a Young Voices uh, contributor as well. as you, you actually wear, I think you wear a pretty impressive title. Tell us a little bit about what you do with Young Voices, Sarah. Thank you. I'm the Northwest Regional Leader, which means all of these Northwestern states, Alaska and Montana included. I am doing our outreach efforts and recruitment. All right. And you and I have, I think, a very timely topic to to touch on today. It's an article you wrote for Real Clear Education. Alaska's poor reading scores reflect flawed teaching methods. Now, see, I would have immediately said, well, it's got to be the pandemic, the shutdowns and everything, the kids being out of school. I know that's kind of the standard explanation. But first of all, tell me a little bit about, about, uh, is this a problem that has plagued Alaska for, for more than just the last couple of years? Has this been going on for some time? Yeah, Alaska has ranked consistently in the bottom 10 states since 2003. So this isn't something we can blame on the pandemic and reading at the very least. Um, In in fact, Alaska schools opened pretty quickly after that initial pandemic uh, panic. And so that things could have been a lot worse had there not been uh, that response. Alaska has actually not declined in reading since 2019. There's no statistically significant difference, Uh, but we're still 49th in the nation in fourth grade reading ahead of only New Mexico in 2022. Okay, and I, you know, it's interesting. I, I live in Idaho. I've been paying pretty close attention to uh, some of the uh, national assessment of educational progress reports. Fourth graders here in Idaho, um, there's there's a surprising number, like maybe 37% that actually read at their proper grade level. And, and it just seems like this is a pretty widespread problem. Talk to me about the problem as it pertains to, to Alaska. Where, where do you see the origination of, of this challenge? Yeah, in Alaska, only about one in four, 25% of fourth graders are reading where they should be. Uh, the National Assessment of Education Progress has a two tiers where it's basic and below basic if you, you're not getting any of these basic masteries. And the root cause of this low performance in every state it comes down to teaching methods uh, in reading that teach kids to use hints rather than sounding out the words. Uh, so you might be encouraged to look at a picture uh, to figure out uh, the meaning of a word or a passage. You, you're encouraged to skip words that you don't know and try and get the context from the whole piece. And that's a skill that only poor readers employ regularly. Skilled readers are sounding out the words learning and and encoding what these words mean, and then they're able to recall it quickly later. Uh, Poor readers are trying to guess, essentially, and that has pervaded teaching methods across the United States, not just in Alaska, uh, since the 70s and 80s. Uh, well, I was going to ask if that's a fairly recent phenomenon. I I remember, you know, growing up in the heyday, the golden years of um, phonics. You know, we were taught, you know, these are the sounds the letters make. Sound it out. You know, try to try to figure it out from there. But um, I know there was a shift. What was the what was the thinking behind that shift? Was it just you know trying to make things easier to relieve some stress on the kids? I I, I want to assume there were good intentions, but it doesn't sound like the results are necessarily panning out. Yeah, it's interesting to talk about that. These approaches are called whole language and balanced literacy. If you're looking in the literature, 
that's what you're going to find. And it really gained steam uh, academically in the 70s and started to be employed in schools in the 80s. And it kind of tries to assume that reading is like speech. If you expose kids to enough books, then they will learn how to read just just through that. Uh, you're supposed to use pictures and context or skip words that you don't know. And when you're learning to read, you don't want to rely on those cues. Adults can rely on those cues because we have a, a larger baseline vocabulary. We've encoded a lot of words that we already know to help give us that context. And so a lot of this comes from adults looking back at how they read and thinking that's how they learned to read. Because I don't know if you remember learning to read. I don't remember. But for a lot of people, it was really a struggle to, to do that. And, and uh, balanced literacy and whole language approaches make that more difficult. Let's talk about the consequences when kids are unable to, to read and, and uh, you know, when it's a challenge for them. How does that uh, manifest in other challenges in their lives? Well, that is it pervades everything in students' lives once they become adults. Um, the economy has been shown to to lag uh, pretty severely once students get to adulthood. Uh, studies have shown that students who are unable to read by the third grade are likely to remain poor readers. They don't catch up after fourth grade. And what happens in fourth grade uh, or that you're you're expected to learn other subjects. You're no longer uh, learning how to read. You're uh, reading to learn material in mathematics and social studies and history. And that becomes really difficult to uh, catch up after that point, especially because there's not as much teaching time going into learning how to read. Um, students are four times more likely to fail to graduate high school on time. Um, and, you know, it, there's uh, criminal justice implications too that seven out of ten prison inmates are functionally illiterate wow so this is widespread implications uh this teaching method is helping students continue to be poor readers and muddle through these early grades and then once they reach fourth grade they're not able to learn the rest of the material so what is happening in Alaska? Obviously, this has come to the attention of of people, uh, presumably some who are in a position to do something about it. Are, are there steps being taken to correct this problem? Absolutely. The Alaska Department of Education has been focusing on reading for a few years now. Uh, just this June, uh, the Alaska Reads Act was signed by Governor Dunleavy. Um, it's a model successes in Mississippi and Florida where uh, those states implemented, you know, statewide screeners for early problems in literacy, including dyslexia, because that's not always easy to find out. Um, there's intensive intervention plans for students that are struggling. Uh, the Alaska Reads Act also includes uh, support for the lowest performing schools in the state. So the lowest 25 percent of performing schools have the option to join a program to get special help from the department. And it's also really important to train teachers in the science of reading to show that, well, this phonics approach is a lot more successful than whole language. And teachers' colleges don't always teach this very well. Uh, they, they continue to teach whole language and balanced literacy. And you can never know what teachers' college is taught where. So it's important to do some professional development to make sure all teachers in the state are understanding the same things and teaching 
uh, with this science of literacy in mind. Okay, now the libertarian in me wants to know, what about uh, outside of the schools? In other words, uh, are, is there anything being done to encourage parents, for instance, to, to step up and teach their kids and, and assist in this? In other words, don't just hand them off to the schools and say, come on, you, you do this all for us. Or, or does any of the, do any of the approaches to fix this problem approach it from the standpoint of, hey, there, there's a lot that could be done at the home, in the home as well? Yeah, there's so many ways that parents should be getting more involved, and it's difficult because parents aren't always going to be able to do that. Um, but one of the optional programs in the Alaska Reads Act for parents is to act as teachers. And this intensive intervention for the students that the teachers undertake require, uh, I think, 10 uh, check-ins throughout the year while two parents showing here's where your student is every two weeks or three weeks. Um, and th that'll be really important for making sure parents are involved and parents are gonna be encouraged to read with their child and and spend some time working on those skills too. So I, I'm very excited that that's part of this program as well. Okay, uh, I'll have a link to your article in realcleareducation.com about uh, Alaska's poor reading scores and the, the flawed teaching methods that are reflected there. Is there any pushback uh, or, or is there resistance to, to address this? I, I'm, I'm not trying to find bad guys or anything, <laughs> but, but I, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to decide, could, could someone be against, you know, reforming or, or correcting some things? Yeah, it really sounds hard to uh, protest against learning how to read, um, but there there are ways to do it. Some opposition uh, while this legislation was being passed uh, concerns it's funding. How are we supposed to fund all of these new changes? And that the bill does include uh, some funding to cover these changes. Um, there's also you know difficulties about culture and how do we respect Alaska Native culture? And, and the bill does include respect for that. Um, in, in, you know, you, it doesn't have to be English that you're proficient in reading, which you just need to be proficient in something. Um, so those are were two big things. I think teachers are worried about finding the time to implement this. And then the only other concern is that teachers are dealing with curriculum changes a lot. And the one thing we really don't want is for this to just be swept under the rug as another high-minded initiative coming from the top down that doesn't really affect teachers. Again, we're talking with Sarah Montalbano. She's the Education Policy Analyst at Alaska Policy Forum and Northwest Regional Leader for Young Voices. Sarah, great to catch up with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. I'm very happy to welcome Quinn Townsend back to the program. Quinn has uh, been on here before. Quinn, for those meeting you for the first time, though, they're going to know you're a Young Voices contributor. Tell us what else you do. Sure. I'm the policy manager at Alaska Policy Forum, um, but I'm located in West Virginia. I have um, a background in natural resource economics. 
And we're going to talk a little bit about climate and agriculture today. And Quinn, it seems to me that more and more, I'm starting to, to sense kind of a collision of sorts uh, between uh, agricultural interests and, and climate policy. The Netherlands comes to mind immediately, where I think somewhere in the neighborhood of 3,000 farmers are, are in danger of having their land. Maybe the government's already decided, we're taking your, your farmland out of a desire to, to implement a particular climate policy that, that has to do with their fertilizing systems or something like that. You make the case that uh, funding agriculture research, though, actually is a win for the climate. And I'm, I'd love to hear your take on this. First of all, is there a collision you know, between agriculture and, and climate policy? Absolutely. Um, many groups and people and studies argue that agriculture, the agriculture industry um, increases CO2 emissions and lots of other you know, things that affect the climate, um, which can be true. Um, in the case of the Netherlands, that's a, a very top down policy um, that has been pretty harmful to farmers in the area um, because it's an across the board mandate, which which can be harmful. Um, and in my piece, I'm arguing that um, while funding research for for projects that um, decrease emissions in agriculture is good. Top-down policies like the one in Netherlands um, is not is not helpful. How aggressive is the United States in terms of its agricultural versus climate uh, policies? I, I haven't paid close attention here, and I live in agricultural country, but uh, is the Biden administration fairly aggressive in, in terms of their, their uh, climate policies regarding agriculture? So the Biden administration is doing lots of different projects. Um, I haven't followed every regulation that affects the agriculture industry, but just in general, there are lots of regulations, um, federal subsidies and federal bailouts that affect the agriculture industry and just distort the market um, and changes prices. And that can also affect climate change. Um, but one program in particular that I wrote about um, just the Biden administration poured about $3 billion, billion with a B as in boy, $3 billion into, um, into a bunch of research projects for different agriculture, just innovative agricultural practices that could um, decrease the effect on the negative effect on climate from agriculture industry. Are there any of those uh, pr- those programs that uh, that stand out as, as particularly promising to you? So a lot of the projects are um, the research is on different regenerative agriculture practices, um, which are things like no-till farming. So you're not using those giant tractors to till up your land. Think the Dust Bowl um, in the Midwest, in America, um, pasture and crop rotation. Um, So it's just using, just being more kind to the land that you're farming, I guess. Um, And there's, there's lots of ways to do that. And I think that that there's just a lot of potential for a lot of those, um, those techniques in the industry. I, I love the idea of numerous programs. I think you mentioned there's 141 different projects that have been funded here. And yeah. and somebody's got to have a great idea. Um, is it hard to work their way through the regulatory red tape? I mean, do they have the freedom to innovate or is that still a challenge? Yeah, so these projects are, the research is funded by the federal government, but just in general, um, 
many farmers and ranchers have a difficult time being innovative um, because of federal requirements, um, like for example, the Endangered Species Act um, can really encroach on private property rights. Think if anyone has ever watched that um, TV series Yellowstone, in the first season, there's several scenes about a grizzly bear and shooting a grizzly bear, and there's a federal investigation because somebody shot a grizzly bear because grizzlies are protected under the ESA. But as a property owner, you are dinged quite badly if you have a grizzly on your property and you have to shoot it for whatever reason, or you don't want a grizzly bear on your property. <laughs> and so you will do things to keep them away that maybe could harm grizzly bears um, and also just inhibit you as a property owner from using your property productively. I remember seeing an editorial cartoon years ago that kind of showed then and now. And then was a, a guy out uh, you know, on his ranch and he looks, oh, look, an eagle. And he's just excited, how beautiful. And then now it's like, oh crap, an eagle. And here comes this EPA truck, you know, with the you know EPA agent right, yeah. to you know, make sure that eagle is being protected. And I thought, yeah, somewhere it seems like what was a good idea and perhaps even a necessary idea has been taken to an extreme that uh, it, it's, I, don't, I think it may be giving us diminishing returns. Yeah, it's just um, perverse incentives for property owners. I know, I don't know all the details, but Wyoming has done some, just recently implemented some innovative ways to address specifically that problem with the federal government that were, if the listeners are interested, it's interesting to read about. So, talk to me about uh, about uh, cover crops and and what what does that do? What first of all, what is it, and then uh, how how does that help the climate? Yeah, specifically, cover crops are just using specific um, like vegetation or smaller crops um, to protect your the farmer's soil um, when they're using other so that they don't have to use as much fertilizer um, or maybe even spray for weeds as much. Um, and research has shown that cover crops um, sequester a lot, like millions of metric tons of carbon. Um, they also help restore soil integrity, which, you know, better, healthier soil means healthier crops, first of all, for the people who are eating them. Um, it means more effective water use, especially out west. That's a really big issue oh, is yeah. not using too much water. Um, there's less erosion because erosion can really affect, um, goes hand in hand with climate change and just even higher crop yields, which is great for the farmer. Well, it's, it's wonderful that the Biden administration has made, you know, um, billions of dollars available to, to do this research. My question is, do, do those dollars come with strings attached? Do, do, I mean, they, they want them to do the research, but does it come um, with, with controls that, that might prevent them from, from being as innovative as they might be? Um, I'm just going to say, generally speaking, most likely, because I think Ronald Reagan was the one who said, you know, the worst thing to hear, this is a paraphrase, but the worst thing to hear is, I'm the government and I'm here to help right, um, because right. there are always strings attached to federal dollars. Um, the other thing I want to note with this, with all of this money that the Biden administration is pouring into this research is while um, federal dollars can be a sticky subject when it, if you are a champion of free markets or fiscal conservatism, conservatism. Um, and I, I do note in my piece that 
while the research is great, I think it's great that we're, that the government is um, encouraging research. The dollar, the price tag is questionable because it wasn't approved by Congress. Um, so I do want to make that note. Okay. And and the word regenerative, regenerative, ugh, regenerative, wow, that's hard for me to say, but it's a hard one. I have heard this recently uh, from a rancher of all people. I've got a friend who's a rancher in Nevada, and this is something that he in particular has, has embraced and is now starting to utilize on his family ranch, um, some kind of, of regenerative ranching that uh, is intended to, you know, use the resources that are there, but to use them wisely enough that, that for generations to come they'll still be there yes that's the i guess that's the gist behind it yes that's the gist behind regenerative and that's why it's um well it could be a a, maybe a rocky start for an individual farmer or rancher if you're you know totally switching over how you produce something um it's it's beneficial for you as the farmer or rancher um, because it improves your land and crops and your animal quality, um, but also preserves the land so it can continue to be farmed. Okay, again, we're talking with Quinn Townsend. She is a Young Voices contributor. Thank you so much for your time today. I hope we talk again soon. Thanks for having me on. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Happy to welcome Scott Newman, who is a Young Voices contributor to the show. Scott, for folks meeting you for the first time, tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Sure. Uh, My name is Scott Newman. I'm a writer and podcaster. Uh, Sometimes I call myself a journalist. Sometimes I call myself a documentarian. Depends on the day, but uh, I'm happy to be on the show. You know, I, I noticed there's a lot of uh, there are a lot of stories that we hear out there, and particularly uh, the the new the news cycle is dominated usually by things that uh, are the worst things that people are either saying or doing to each other. So it's always refreshing to encounter you know someone who's doing something that's very noteworthy, inspiring, maybe even heroic. And I understand that you had a conversation, an interview with a human rights activist that uh, that really left an impression on you. Set the stage for us and tell us about that conversation. Sure. Uh, So I was doing a fellowship earlier this year in the United Kingdom with the Common Sense Society. And one of the senior fellows at the program uh, was a gentleman by the name of Aaron Rhodes. I didn't know much about him before the program, uh, and we didn't get to speak at length during the program. Uh, But we did meet uh, and kept in touch. And afterwards, I was in Berlin doing something else. Uh, and uh, post-fellowship, and I decided to give Aaron a call. He lived in Hamburg, took a train, and I spent two days with him uh, interviewing him about his life and career and was very pleased to learn about what was really an extraordinary journey through a number of different industries, including uh, including human rights. Now, I, I'm, I'm curious, uh, what was the story that... that uh... What led him to be a human rights activist? I mean, he's, you mentioned, I think he's what, 71 years old? He's 73 years 73? old at the moment. Okay, so he's, he's but, had a good long life. He's probably seen a thing or two. Tell me a little bit about his journey. Sure. Uh, the journey itself is what attracted me to him. 
and his story he began uh, in north hornell new york which is it's in western new york around finger lakes uh went to first he went to colby then he went to reed college and after college he he was a, a rock musician for about a year uh he enjoyed that <laughs> while it lasted and then he went and got a phd um, at the Committee on Social Thought at the University of Chicago. And while doing his PhD, he concurrently got very involved in the Daly machine. Uh, Daly was the mayor of Chicago for over a decade, sort of a, a William Boss Tweed-like figure. Um, and Aaron was in steeped in, in city and metropolitan politics while also completing his PhD. After that, he went to the Institute for Human Science in Vienna, and then he went, uh, excuse me, after his PhD, he went and worked for a guy named John Sober, who was president of Boston University. Then he went uh, to the Institute for Human Science in Vienna, and afterwards, he ended up getting tapped to run the International Helsinki Federation. So it was a highly nonlinear path. What what interested me about Aaron was that he reinvented every couple of years. First, after college, he invented himself as as a rock musician, you know, schlepping around this trumpet. Uh, then he decided to get a PhD, which was, it's not the most common life path. Uh, his parents were artists. Afterwards, um, you know, and while he was there, he got really involved in metropolitan politics. So what it, you know, what attracted me to this guy was, Here's a here's a guy who is willing and able to reinvent himself not once, not twice, but three, four, five times, uh, and to find success and fulfillment in a number of different careers. I, it was inspiring to me. It was an idea, perhaps, that you need to pick something you want to do by the age of 30 and just do that for the rest of your life or do that for 30 years and then retire. Aaron is certainly an anomaly. If that's the norm, Aaron is an anomaly in that regard. And in particular, uh, let's let's talk about human rights on on the on the scale of the UN. Um, there's sometimes some mixed messages. You point this out, I think, in, in the article that you've written that, you're, that will be published here eventually. That um, one of the things that the, the mixed messages is you have some of the biggest human rights violators sitting on the human rights council for for the un how, how do they reconcile yeah. that i mean it's uh, there's always a little hypocrisy in politics but that one seems a little more glaring than others it is a glaring hypocrisy according to aaron um and that's one of the main facets of his thesis he objects to the inclusion of human rights violators in multilateral treaties and uh, multilateral organizations um, that are producing research and leadership and guidance on human rights. He thinks that if you break the rules, you don't deserve a seat at the table. If you break the very rules that the organization of which you are a part is laying out, you should not be at the table. And that's one facet of his thesis. So I th he would agree with you in that regard that there's a lot of hypocrisy there. Tell me about the second facet. The second facet of his thesis is that human, re human rights discourse in recent years has been hijacked uh, by what he considers to be unscrupulous politicians who attempt to use the legitimacy of human rights 
to talk about basically anything else. They Everything becomes a human rights violation. And Aaron objects to the inclusion of issues which ought to be you know, had out in civil society, in human rights discourse. In his view, human rights is a very narrow, very specific uh, field and domain. And what's happened is that politicians, think tankers, journalists like to use human rights because it's catchy and sensational. And when you hear human rights, you know, people throw their hands up in the air and they say, oh, no, you know, this is a human rights violation. And Aaron says, no, we shouldn't be so <laughs> fast and loose with what we attribute uh, the title to. That would solve a lot of problems in, in so many areas of politics. Just if 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 words weren't used so euphemistically or as, as it appears you're pointing out or Aaron's concern is that, that it's being used more as like a political shield or political cover for something that uh, that could be settled outside of politics. That's absolutely correct. Um, it's not so much a euphemism as taking something that has legitimacy and hiding basically behind that using it as a shield. It's like advancing whatever policy you want and then saying, well, I was instructed by, you know, uh, by, by my whatever religious deity to do it. Um, it's, it's human rights is sacred and many people consider human rights to be sacred, uh, and issues that have absolutely nothing to do with human rights are often brought into human rights discourse. Now we're down to about two minutes left in the segment here, but what are, what are the important takeaways from Aaron's message that you would want our audience to internalize as a result of being made aware of it? So the two main points of his thesis as discussed was that human rights discourse has been hijacked uh, by people who use it to legitimize, legitimize issues which have absolutely nothing to do with human rights. And the second portion of his thesis is that human rights violators should not be included in multilateral human rights organizations. I think another important part of this piece is that uh, Aaron and I have a 50 year age gap about a 50 year age gap and we're still able to become friends so that's meaningful um and then the last part of it that uh that i've already spoken about and which i would like to reiterate for the sake of emphasis is that uh you are able to reinvent yourself not just once but two three four five times in your life yeah, just I, I'm impressed with, uh, you know, as, as you describe in his story, th this is a guy with resilience. You know, um, you, you point out he's been dealt some really difficult hands and instead of crumbling from it, uh, you know, he's just taken the opportunity to reinvent himself. And, and it sounds like he's doing a lot of good, which the beauty of that is, you know, that rubs off on you. You'll rub off on other people. I mean, you have uh, you have a lot of years ahead of you to be, you know, developing and wielding your influence. And it sounds like Aaron has done a really good job of, of using his influence wisely, wherever he happens to be standing. I think that's accurate. He's perched in Vienna uh, in his own little neck of the woods. Uh, and yet this, this kid from New York found him and was inspired by him. So I think that's absolutely correct. I got to ask you, we've got about 30 seconds left. What was the goopy cheese dish over which the two of you met? It was this camembert concoction. Uh, <laughs> we were in this long patrician dining hall, 
and uh, it was like a camembert soup type thing. Uh, and I didn't know if we had to use spoons to eat it like soup or use the bread to dip, to like dip in, but they gave a meager amount of bread. So once we finished the bread to do the scooping, we weren't sure how to scoop the rest of it. So we had to use spoons. Okay, that sounds like an adventure in and of itself. Scott Newman, thank you so much for being my guest. Great to visit with you. Thank you, great to be on the show. This is our fourth and final segment of Moving Forward with Young Voices. Happy to welcome Mike Viola back to the program. Mike uh, is uh, currently speaking to us from Atlanta, Georgia, from the Foundation for Economic Education. And he's also a Young Voices contributor. And are there, are there any other hats you wear, Mike, that uh, you'd like to tell us about? That's mostly it. That and, you know, the I'm on the board of America's Future Atlanta. If you guys don't know, America's Future is a great organization that promotes local, uh, less political sort of action. Um, so I'm kind of proud to work in our Atlanta outpost of AF. You know, I, uh, I keep my eye open every day cause I'm always looking for, you know, things that are attention getting headlines that mm-hmm. capture my attention and make me want to click and read. This one caught my attention. Libertarians should take a political lesson from Donald Trump. Now this is an article you wrote for townhall.com. Tell me a little bit about, uh, about what this article addresses. Sure. So obviously you guys know um, this past election cycle, uh, some things went well for Republicans who were considered the favorites. Some things went not so well. Um, a, a lot of people like to divide it up, you know, neatly into, you know, were they too Trumpy or were they not too Trumpy? Um, and I think that that was a pretty good, um, you know, s- determiner of criteria. But um in the state of Georgia, there was a more unusual case. Um, that is, in all the statewide races, Republicans swept by five to ten points each um, in every major contested position, with the exception of Herschel Walker, uh, who um, I, I believe at the time that I wrote this had not yet lost his runoff. But um, he, you know, he and Raphael Warnock failed to reach a majority. Warnock getting a slightly bigger plurality than Walker. And um, in the early December runoff election, Herschel Walker lost by, I think, three points, um, despite Republicans otherwise doing pretty well in the state. Um, As a result of his uh, double losses, both the general election and the runoff election loss, uh, you guys may have heard of um, the Libertarian candidate, who got a bit of national press first taking about 2% of the vote, um, which contrary to his claims was actually about average for a libertarian candidate in, in those elections. Um, but it, it sort of turned into a whole, um, you know, should libertarians spoil the election and prove that we need another <laughs> uh, alternative to the duopoly, blah, 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 blah. I don't even you know disagree with that statement, but it's it just doesn't really accept the reality of the political world we live in. Um, ultimately, libertarians made no real impression on those races. Um, and that one candidate who went on this wonderful publicity tour of spoiling the race um, <laughs> and causing a you know, runoff that cost taxpayers $10 million. Um, 
it had nothing to do with policy. It had nothing to do with philosophy. It had nothing to do with Raphael Warnock or Herschel Walker's perceived libertarianism deficit. It purely had to do with Herschel Walker's um, shortcomings as a candidate, his personal life, his uh, real or perceived intellectual capacity, et cetera. So I decided to put together this piece to essentially argue that Republicans, or excuse me, libertarians are doing it all wrong. They should instead follow the Trump model. Donald Trump in 2016, as everybody remembers, um, took over the Republican Party by tapping into a minority, a vocal minority of the party that nevertheless wanted to see serious changes to the way things were done. Some of that was on policy grounds. Some of that was on the grounds of tone. Libertarians have a great opportunity, especially as Trump's legacy flames out, to reach out to those elements of the Republican Party and turn that into a more dominant ideology within the party. They have obviously existing members who can support that. They have people who are open to new ideological views, particularly after the GOP's lackluster performance in three state national three straight national elections. Um, and it just strikes me as, you know, that is the way that change is really made and really the direction that small L libertarians, you can decide whether or not that includes the Libertarian Party that they should really take to get their ideas in place. I have to say it makes a lot of sense. And and I've I've been disillusioned with the duopoly for quite some time. Um, but when I do get involved, like when I attend my neighborhood caucuses and things like that, I usually do it as a Republican simply because that's where the influence can be wielded. That's where it can be felt. And for the, you know, that's where I can, for whatever little influence I have, try to, you know, stump for smaller, more responsible government. Um, so I, I, I agree with your premise that, uh, you know, it's easier to, to change an existing party than, than to, cre- to create one. Tell me about your take on, on the Republican Party right now. Do you see a, a clear schism or a, a do I dare say a battle for the soul of the party going on? I do. But the problem with that is a lot of that is um, sort of on grounds of tone rather than policy. Right. It's like who fights and who doesn't. Um, and, you know, this whole Speaker McCarthy debacle aside, you know, I, I think we saw even there, there was kind of an incoherence in that anti-McCarthy faction. I think they got some interesting concessions, but like, you know, the what motivated Chip Roy was very different from what motivated Representative Matt Gates in that kerfuffle, if, if anybody followed it. Um, and so I think libertarians have kind of a chance to approach the party, understanding that there are there's both radically different policy motivations across the party that are not really being acknowledged. And there are also these tone lines that are kind of the fault line within the party at the moment. And uh, maybe they need to understand how to navigate that a little bit more. I actually didn't really talk much about that tone direction, but I think that's pretty critical in libertarians beginning to understand, right? Um, I think a lot in the GOP, you know, they would like a candidate who fights, but who can also win. And um, the Trump model of being a fighter or pretending to be a fighter, however you want to interpret that, um, obviously proves that when you alienate enough people, being a fighter doesn't 
matter policy-wise because you lose your elections. <laughs> so um, I, I think that's something for libertarians to consider, right? Um, do yeah, I believe in gun rights, right? But is, is your presentation always you wearing your AK-47 <laughs> on the front of your body in every political appearance and running on a sketchy third party line instead of presenting, say, you know, standard Republican economic talking points in a Republican primary, but introducing maybe some interesting ideas on criminal justice reform or drug policy or taking a harder line on school choice, that sort of thing. Let me throw um, something at you here real quick, Mike. I'd like to get your take on this because I I see way more platitudes than I think I should be seeing. I think politics almost exists as platitudes. All right, this is what my audience wants to hear. Here are the platitudes that will you know encourage you to vote for me. Something I don't see, though, are candidates who are actually speaking or appealing to something that would actually inspire support. And and I, I think there's a difference between flattering and inspiring. Um, is there any validity to, to that observation? And don't, it won't hurt my feelings if you say, Brian, that's that's just garbage. <laughs> uh, I, I do think you're onto something. I think, um, you know, there's a difference, though. I, I think both major parties have the problem where, you know, it's rational in the short term to play to your base and it's rational in the long term to expand your base. Um, but a lot of politicians believe rightly or wrongly that they don't have the capital to focus on the long term. And so they always focus on um, maybe more that flattery model of playing to their base. Um, that doesn't really work in the long run with, you know, expanding your coalition, um, breaking into demographics that your party hasn't normally hit, et cetera. Um, so I, I do think you're onto something. I think there's also um, sometimes when a political party or political system becomes so ossified, um, it's just a lot easier to avoid shaking things up, almost not even to flatter your base, but to flatter your the, the system itself. I'll give an example out of Georgia where I think libertarians could have made a difference. There um, was the state education superintendent race this past um, cycle. It's you know, I don't, I don't know why we do it, but we here elect um, the, the chief educational officer of the state every four years. Um, and because th there was an ultra institutionalist Republican incumbent um, who who was nominated again by the party running against um, a pro school choice Democrat who was thrown under the bus by the Stacey Abrams campaign <laughs> and the state parties, et cetera. Um, most people were probably just looking at party IDs when they voted in this race. I voted for a Democrat for the first time in my, you know, for a statewide race for the first time in my life because she was, you know, doing the right thing. But somehow, she had something more to offer you. Mike, we're, we're, we're up against the clock here. I'm so sorry that we're out of time. Thank you, though, for, for writing the article. Thanks for being my guest. Great to visit with you once again. Yeah, it was great talking, Brian.